Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Robert Rivard. Robert needs little introduction in San Antonio. He's the editor and publisher of the Rivard Report, uh, which I think personally is kind of the premier news outlet in San Antonio and one of these few news outlets that isn't focused on, you know, clickbait and things like that. And I really appreciate appreciate the fact that they focus on news that matters to all of us. Uh, Robert is a published author. He was previously the editor of the San Press. He's worked at Newsweek. Uh, he's won numerous awards, including Editor of the Year in 2000. And, and Robert, my law firm supports the Rivard Report. I think everybody should support the Rivard Report. I personally want to thank you for what y'all do and how you know sunlight's the best disinfectant and y'all are the best sunlight in the city. So thank you for being here and thank you for what you do. Thanks for the kind words, Justin, and thanks for your support. Um, and thanks for the uh, invitation to everyone listening today or watching to uh, join in that support. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm going to encourage everybody, if you have not reached out to the Rivard Report and supported, uh, every little bit helps. Uh, every little bit helps you all do what you all do, which is great for the city. Um, I'm also messing with this video right now because, of course, when you get here, one of my biggest guests, I'm going to have some technical difficulties. Um, the audio is on, though, and, Robert, we start every episode and we go through every episode with a little bit about um, color commentary, where you're from, what do you do, what do you like, when and why did you move to San Antonio? I moved uh, here with my wife, Monica Mackley, and our two very young sons in 1989. I left Newsweek magazine in New York. My wife wanted to come back to Texas and raise the boys here. My whole career before I joined Newsweek was in Texas, starting as a sports reporter at the Brownsville Herald and moving to, to the news side there and then up to the Corpus Christi Caller and then the Dallas Times Herald, uh, which sent me to uh, Latin America to cover civil wars in the 1980s. And that's where Newsweek and I connected. And, um, and uh, it became time to make some choices between... Uh, the fast track of my career in New York and around the world. Um, I was managing Newsweek's bureaus all over the world, uh, which was a very exciting job for me. But for my wife with two young baby boys, uh, it wasn't the ideal family situation. Sure. And, um, I was smart enough to listen to her and choose family over career. And that's what brought us to San Antonio back to Texas in 1989. So where are you from originally? Well, I was born uh, at the top of the mitten, as we say in Michigan, in Petoskey on Lake Michigan. <laughs> I'm French Canadian by heritage, Rivard. That could be uh, down here. It could be Rivera, okay, or Rios, <laughs> and um, yeah. So I, I spent my boyhood in Michigan. My father was a traveling salesman. I moved around, uh, lived in a number of states: uh, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Kansas, and um, I eventually found my way as a young man down to uh, to Brownsville. And that's where I started my journalism career. Top of the mitten to the bottom of the state. Top of the mitten. So how far from Traverse City? Oh, very close. Okay. An hour, yeah. So I had never heard the mitten thing. I don't. I lived under a rock, I guess, but I have a good friend, and that's what she said. She did this and pointed to the top. Top of the mitten. Yeah, okay. So now I know. Here, um, here's a mitten on my keychain. Oh, okay. Fair I keep, enough. I keep close to my roots. Well, she just kept sticking her hand up at me and saying top of the mitten. I, I thought she was having a stroke or something. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um what are your personal main sources of news? Well, I'm uh, a little obsessive compulsive about 
about news. Um, before I came here, I was reading the Atlantic magazine online. Everything I read is digital. Um, I don't, I haven't seen print products for years. Yeah. Uh, we still get the Sunday New York times. My wife likes to have the physical copy and I find myself enjoying going through the pages there. Although I've probably read most of what I'm looking at days earlier online, sure. um, every morning or every night, really, before I, I go to bed, I read the New York times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, the three national publications. And um, most of what's in their morning publications is online the previous evening. And I want to read that. I obviously read uh, uh, everything that we publish and I still read the Express News. Uh, I can't read mysanantonio.com. I couldn't read it when I worked as editor Okay, what is, the, what is the difference? Because I, I can't figure out it's, why one is like Us Weekly of news and one still seems to be news. It's clickbait. Okay. Yeah, so, sort of. you know, you want to tell advertisers that millions of people are coming to your site, so you put Eva Longoria in a, in a bikini on a slideshow, and you've got a couple of man-bite dog stories and uh, junk from all over the world. You and, won't believe what he caught in the Gulf of Mexico, dot, <laughs> dot, dot. Yeah. I see those. Yeah. Yeah. So advertisers, at least advertisers of a certain age and demographic fall prey to that and think they're connecting with large audiences. But, uh, you know, the expressnews.com, I mean, they have some very serious, very accomplished journalists there still, even after all the downsizing over the years. And um, they're doing some great work. Um, And and we're going to get into that more, but that's part of the influence that is not with a Rivard report is you do not have the pressures of advertisers and things like that to where you feel the need to get this clickbait numbers up. Y'all are nonprofit, right? That's correct. And nonpartisan. We're nonpartisan. We're nonprofit. And it doesn't mean that we don't have pressures because we have the pressure of raising several million dollars a year to support the, you know, 20 full-time people that are working there and the number of freelancers and the overhead and so forth. So it's a different kind of situation, but it does give us some editorial independence uh, from the for-profit model. And, and the primary independence it gives us, Justin, is that most newspapers, virtually all newspapers, uh, are owned by corporate entities that are not located in the communities where they publish. And the disruption, the financial and economic disruption in the, in the, in the media business has been such that most of those corporate owners no longer pay any pretense of caring about community, putting community first, being a public trust. It's all about you know, making the bottom line work and surviving in a uh, very competitive world where where the uh, where the internet's disrupted everything. So um, many journalists across the country have done what I've done. I was early doing it. We're we're eight and a half years old. Wow! But there's 230 nonprofit digital media sites now in American cities across the country. Some more successful than others. We're we're sh- certainly in the top. 10 percent yeah uh, of of those uh of those entities for both uh, the size of our audience um our revenue streams uh the quality of the journalism we're doing but uh it's happening everywhere and we can't pretend to um fill the role that u.s newspapers once played in communities where they were everything to everybody but uh we 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 do our part in in helping fill an, an increasingly large vacuum. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But you also had a history with the San Antonio Light, which when I moved here didn't even exist. So there's all that history there that you know is gone forever. But we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, a little bit more about sort of your San Antonio love and connections and feels. What are some of your favorite places in San Antonio that are kind of off the beaten path? 
Well, the river defines the the city for me, and I'm a cyclist. You know, okay. I like to be a road bike. I was the founding captain of the Third Street Grackles cycling team back in the day, and and uh, from 2005 to 2015, we raised about a half a million dollars for multiple sclerosis research and rode the MS 150 every Very year cool. to, to the coast or later to New Braunfels when they changed the course. And I'm not doing those kind of long distance rides, but I'm still on my bike all the time. I was at the protest, uh, uh, all, you know, for the last several nights I've been uh, on my bike and, you know, uh, riding along the protest to observe as a journalist. So I like the river. I particularly like the mission reach and, um, very few people are familiar with the four, mile extension of the Mission Reach below Mission Espada that's opened up, and it is amazing. Okay. It, so we, we have some of the most amazing urban nature in San Antonio. My wife is a citizen scientist, Monica Mackley. She founded the uh, San Antonio Monarch and uh, Butterfly and Pollinator Festival at the Pearl. I went this year to one of the events at the uh, the, the stables. Yeah, she was, the I think, the real catalyst for us becoming the first monarch champion city in the United States when Ivy Taylor was mayor. And so she's written a lot about urban nature, uh, both for her blog, the Texas Butterfly Ranch, and just also for the Rivard Report. And um, I get to tag along on all that. So I had no idea your wife was Texas Butterfly Ranch. The other, the other day I spent time with her and a biologist or a botanist from the San Antonio River Authority removing Chinese snail eggs <laughs> from the King William Reach okay. uh, that are invasive. Somebody took their pet snails out of an aquarium and threw them in the river, and we now have an invasive species huh. problem. And my wife's out there uh, Good for her. <laughs> doing battle against Chinese snails. And, of course, I'm in a kayak next to her tagging yeah. along. Yeah, support. So that's my idea of a good time when I've got downtime. And uh, uh, one of, my, one of our, our two adult sons, Alexander, who's a school teacher and owns a coffee business in town, He's kind of a pro-level Scrabble player, and I've become addicted to Scrabble later okay. in life. Uh, I can't seem to beat him, yeah. uh, except when I get lucky. But, uh, I, you know, Scrabble keeps my, my brain working. The wiring good keeps me young. I've decided I'm really good at Scrabble if I pick my opponents wisely. So that's sort of my trick. But it's great. Like, I didn't know your wife was part of the Texas Butterfly Ranch. We got certified at my home is a certified Monarch way station now. So we planted all the things and did all the water. We've got uh, local milkweed, not the tropical. So we're, we're taking it all real seriously. You're going to make her very happy. Yeah, she, no, that's great. She oversaw the 300 uh, Pollinator Gardens Initiative in our tricentennial year. How cool. And those signs that you have are her, those are her signs. Well, tell her that. I mean, it's <laughs> something I don't tell people because it's kind of a weird thing I do at the home, but. More people are doing it than ever before. That's yeah, great to know. Um, okay. What is the single biggest challenge for an independent nonprofit news outlet like yours? Well, the biggest challenge for me um, was at age 59 starting something from scratch. And, uh, and I say that because I came out of a 30 or 35 year career at the time, uh, having worked for five major, you know, global media companies. And, and so uh, I didn't necessarily consider myself a corporate guy, but I was not part of what uh, my friend Graham Weston called the, the startup culture of San Antonio. And <laughs> after I uh, retired from the express news or really what I call my divorce from the express news, uh, Graham invited me out to Rackspace to and said, you know, leave your suit at home and and we're going to come get, get your corporate skin off. And I said, Graham, I don't have any corporate skin. He goes, just come out here. And it was coming out into the land of tattoos and piercings sure. and low office lighting. And 
And that's really where um, I started to hang out with people that were mostly in their 20s and 30s that were completely focused on starting up their own enterprises, whether they were software uh, enterprises or whatever they were doing. They were trying to solve problems with technology. And it really, um, it really helped me pivot at an age when most people really are coming toward the end of their career, yeah. not reinventing themselves. And frankly, it was one of the most enriching experiences of my life. And, and, um, when you took him up on that, did you know that the next goal was to start an independent web-based media or well, a news service? He, he was urging me to do that to keep okay. my voice in the community. And I had, uh, him backing me and I had, uh, you know, the greatest philanthropist the city or state's ever known, Charles Butt, the mm -hmm. CEO and chairman of, of HEB. Uh, we shared, uh, we shared many, um, philosophical viewpoints toward, um, the, the need to improve public education outcomes in the inner city. And he was somebody I greatly admired for the company. His philanthropy his personal philanthropy. And, um, yeah, those were two really, uh, strong mentors who helped me, um, see my way through, uh, with Monica who helped me, uh, co-found the Rivard report really as a blog. Yeah. And, uh, it just took off. It took off in terms of audience. It took off in people wanting to advertise to the point where a couple of years into its, um, uh, publication, people started approaching me about buying equity positions in it. And I tried very hard because I had been up in that startup world. I been one of the you know first things at geekdom uh when it was at the weston center and then at the rand and uh, i was going to use the money to to scale up because we yeah. were i think we were four people at the time but ultimately we were never going to make the kind of money that venture capitalists want uh on their investments sure. so some of the same people who were very philanthropic beyond graham and and um and and charles but people like lou mormon the president of Rackspace. uh John Newman, Chico Newman, the head of Newman Family Foundation, they convinced me to go nonprofit. That was 2015. And that was not an easy step to take because my wife and I had built with sweat equity uh, quite an enterprise. Yeah. And it was really something that was having an increasingly influential place in the media landscape. And it meant surrendering it all, including <laughs> our own financial investment. Sure. Um, to a nonprofit, but it was the right thing to do. And uh, there was something about the community's perception of the Rivard Report once it became nonprofit. And it just, I thought I'd been building fantastically, uh, but it really took off after that. And we really quickly scaled up to the size we're at now as people started to become donating members. Uh, more philanthropists joined us. Um, many of the leading foundations in San Antonio made significant multi-year commitments People wanted quality, credible uh, journalism and civic engagement that we were offering um, where we weren't doing the crime blotter. We weren't doing clickbait. We weren't doing yeah. celebrity gossip and news. Uh, we weren't intensely negative. We weren't sensational. And the college-educated, engaged citizen, the person who votes, the people that are really making the city go, they wanted something that was of higher purpose. And uh, our mission-driven journalism as a nonprofit really resonated with people and and uh, the result is what you see today. The donors list is a who's who of San Antonio philanthropists and foundations now. I was going through it before you got here. It's pretty impressive. I have a really strong business team. It's run by uh, um, three of the four people, our Trinity grads, uh, Jenna Mallet, our chief operating officer, uh, Katie Silva, our development director, um, Cassie Kelly, our membership director, and then uh, Laura Lopez, who's a roadrunner like me, UTSA, <laughs> 
She's our event coordinator. And when we look at what we accomplish, uh, not only with our individual and business membership base, which is in the thousands now, um, but also just with our annual City Fest, uh, our annual education forum, our annual medical forum, we're doing civic engagement events every month. And now we're doing them virtually. Yeah. And they're attracting really strong audiences of community leaders, uh, people in the neighborhoods that um, just have a real appetite for that kind of uh, um, what I would call really nutritious journalism. It's media. It's dense. It's actual information about real issues instead of kind of a glossing over. And, and the funny thing is when I'll see y'all cover something, there's not alternatives to the coverage. It's stuff that nobody's covering, which, you know, that's I think what makes y'all so more so so invaluable to the city is there's no alternative means of getting some of that information in terms of what y'all cover. So, um, and, and I'll, we'll get back to it, but you personally also write, I always make sure to read yours because they're always kind of a more macro feel. It, it seems to me, is there any specific type of coverage that you prefer? Do you like the politics? Do you like the culture? Do you like the, what's happening in the city? Is there a specific angle that you prefer to cover? Well, I've always uh, been a writing uh, editor. Uh, of course, I was a reporter and writer for a long time at different newspapers and then at Newsweek. But I've always believed that editors are um, the strongest editors lead by writing and that the, uh, the, the reporters and, and others who are in the organization can see that you're not asking people to do anything that you're not more than capable of doing yourself. And I've also just had a front row seat on the city now for decades. Yeah. And, and so... Um, you know, I'm something of an institutional memory, yeah. uh, as is Rick Casey, who who writes for us on a weekly basis. Um, there's just no substitution for people that have been uh, witnessing the the events and the individuals and the entities in the city that um, constitute its history over a period of uh, contemporary time. Right. Um, I write a weekly column. It's an opinion column. You know, I have a take. Sometimes people uh, disagree intensely with it. Um, but that's okay. I think um, I'm, I'm provoking thought and debate and conversation. Um, I don't try to be uh, sensational. Uh, and I, you know, I um, express my beliefs, but I also understand there's alternative points of view. And um, we invite people um, to have the same homepage space that I get to write commentaries, which is very unusual. Yeah. You know, we're a two way street and uh, you can't find that in other media. Um, there may be a letter to the editor in the newspaper that nobody reads or hardly anybody reads, but we're offering people the homepage with the same social media and newsletter promotion that, that my work gets. And um, I wanted to teach some of the younger reporters an old dog's trick uh, from my Newsweek days. And so at the outbreak of the coronavirus uh, um, pandemic here and the ultimate, you know, the ensuing economic shutdown, social shutdown, I started writing a week in review piece. It really just gives the casual reader uh, or someone that's just too busy to read everything every day because we do publish so much. Here's a roundup of how this week, yeah. how much happened in this week, which is, it's extraordinary sometimes when you look back and go, all of that happened in a seven day period. And um, I try to give, you know, put a lot of writer, writerly voice in that and not make it just a uh, wire service kind of story. And uh, that may be a feature that survives the coronavirus uh era in the city and that we continue afterwards. But uh, the column, you know, it's a weekly endeavor and um, uh, it keeps my voice in the community and I stay connected to community leaders and talk to them. And I think I have their 
their trust and confidence. And, and uh, that's something that's been hard earned over the years. And it's, it's a privilege. I recognize it as such and uh, try to exercise it responsibly. Yeah. I didn't realize that you were doing the week in review, but it's funny you said that because I was, there are so many fires right now in terms of a news cycle. I mean, the, just the pandemic, just the economic fallout of the pandemic is its own. Just the health side is its own. The riots are their own. So the coverage I've had of coronavirus has been fantastic. But I was just thinking about that before you got here. Like, that's a ton to juggle for somebody that doesn't have giant corporate means behind them. You know, I mean, and y'all are doing a great job. I'm going to challenge you on one word and say we haven't had riots in the city. We had fair enough. We had some, you know, scattered looting and and uh, property damage. But uh, when you compare that to the damage that's been done to some of these African American families, that's the real damage. Uh, what uh, what police have done to unarmed black men in the country, and that includes uh, cases that we wrote about today on the Rivard report that occurred here in San Antonio in 2015 and. And 2016, and we wrote about them in the context of the the police union contract, which makes it almost impossible uh, for uh, San Antonio Police Chief William McManus to fire a rogue cop. And um, I'm writing about that this Sunday, and I'm going to mention a Washington Post investigation that was done in 2017. So it's slightly out of date now, but I'm, I'm certain the data would still hold. And it looked at the top 55 U.S. cities over a period of a decade, 2006 to 2017, San Antonio had the highest percentage of fired police officers for misconduct that arbitrators gave them their jobs back in defiance of the police chief's decision to fire them. And it's just, uh, you know, it creates a climate of impunity among people that wear badges and carry guns. 90% of those officers are going to you know, be stand-up people. Uh, they uh, are, you know, they are given uh, an enormous responsibility um, as as our protectors, and they exercise that responsibility with character and integrity and diligence. But people do slip through. Uh, there are bad apples, and the inability of the police chief to permanently take these people who are unfit for duty and get them off the force it just breeds a, um, a, a subculture within the police department of, of impunity that's very dangerous. And that has happened around the country. We're not alone. And, um, you know, we have a situation where I don't think any rational person can, can, can uh, argue with the statement that people of color live in fear of police. And, you know, I'm, I'm white. I can empathize with that. I can sympathize with that, but I can't really know it. I mean, I, I'm not in the mood to run into the police either myself, but I feel pretty capable if it does happen that I can handle myself uh, and I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I don't do things that should get me in trouble, so I shouldn't get in trouble is how I feel. African-Americans feel like they're not doing anything that should get them in trouble, but they're in trouble anyway. Sure. And that's the difference. And that has to be addressed, and it has to be addressed in this city. Even if we're mourning George Floyd and what happened in Minneapolis right now, um, we should be talking about the fact that it can and does happen here and it will happen again if we don't do something about it now. So, and I think that's a, a great segue. I wasn't really planning on going there, but before you got here, I was speaking to a friend of mine, uh, who's an African-American gentleman. And I just said, how many times a year do you get pulled over? And he said, at least four. And I mean, it's just, 
it is two different uh, experiences uh, compared to me. I said, maybe I've been pulled over four times in my whole life. Um, one of the things that I hear sort of mixed uh, perceptions on is the idea that San Antonio doesn't deal with these problems. And then you'll hear people say, no, 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 we have all of those problems. You just don't hear about them. What is sort of the reality in your experience covering San Antonio? What is the best source of information? And what do you think San Antonio's failing on other than the inability to fire uh, police officers, which is obviously a problem? Where do you think we fail on race relations? Well, I think we fail on a number of fronts. And I don't think you can talk about racial injustice without talking about economic segregation. And, um, you know, it was a real wake-up call last October when the U.S. Census released its annual list of cities with the highest percentage of population living in poverty. And there was San Antonio in the number one position having supplanted Detroit. Um, I'm a Michigan native, so you won't hear me talk bad about Detroit. It was the first big city uh, that I that I experienced, and I loved it as a boy. But Detroit's arguably the most troubled city in America yeah. over the last 20 years. And to s- surpass Detroit with 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 a higher percentage of people living in poverty is something that ought to stop every San Antonian in their day and make them just over a moment of silence consider the implications of that and the responsibility that all of us have as citizens, no matter how much we're, we're prospering in our own lives and careers, to say that that's something that we need to own. Even if it's historically the result of policies that, that date back a century or more, sure. which it is, housing policies, uh, policing practices, um, how people define citizenship for people of color uh, in our in our history, people that are uh, were prominently of Mexican descent versus how they defined citizenship for you know Anglo's right. And um, I see that as something that's incredibly important to look at. We've been publishing this year a series called Disconnected, all about that economic segregation, where we took every person on the Rivard Report team and had them delve into an aspect of that in their own areas of expertise. And it's been very powerful narrative uh, storytelling that we've been doing. And just as we concluded the first iteration of that series over, I think, about 13 weeks, the um, coronavirus pandemic hit. And, uh, you know, we've seen 125,000 people lose their jobs uh, since March in this city. And think about that. Sure, there's an, any number of 25-year-old individuals that live in an apartment somewhere that have lost their job, but there's also households with dependent spouses, dependent children. Um, those workers, many of them have lost or never had health care benefits. They don't have savings. They're working poor. They're hourly wage earners who already were um, probably qualified as working poor people even though they were employed. They probably had more than one job. Um, suddenly they're out of work. There's a little bit of a social safety net through the stimulus bill, but that's limited in its short term. Those those funds will start to run out this summer. And uh, and so the economic um, uh, disparities in our, in our community are only going to grow more dire um, because of the pandemic and the economic shutdown in the months ahead. We're not going to recover quickly. There's not going to be that economic V that that uh, the Trump administration and others are hoping for. It's going to be a long, slow, painful, and very uneven recovery uh, with some of us, uh, you know, doing better than others. The city and the county and uh, the private sector, the nonprofit sector, 
the business leadership, everyone's going to have to come together in some way, shape, or form and own this and work together for to, to both uh, enact policies and also to fund initiatives that will um, soften the blow for people. So when Ron was on the show, he sort of, he mentioned that this is kind of an opportunity for the city to also take a second stab at addressing that inequality um, because you have so many people that are now in the same boat. And so the discussion of people that maybe always would say, well, I'm not them, are now those people that they weren't feeling much empathy for. From a systemic or structural standpoint, what do you think San Antonio um, is doing uh, poorly in terms of rising people up out of poverty? Do you think it's education or job opportunity or higher paying jobs, all of the above? I actually think we're doing a lot on the public education front that's very good. Okay. And, and uh, you know, we're, there's a lot of talk right now about developing a vaccine for the coronavirus, right? The vaccine for poverty is a good education, and we've known that for a while. Uh, that's a nonpartisan fact, and, and uh, it's not subject to dispute. You break generational poverty by taking the next generation and giving them the same economic opportunities as people in the middle class or, or higher enjoy. Educated people almost by and large end up leading lives with, uh, you know, that have purpose and meaning and choices, and they're not going to f- fall into poverty they're going to have uh, the education and the tools that they need to provide for themselves and their families. And so increasing the investment and the focus that we put on, particularly the inner city public schools, is critical. And I've seen us do that, and we're continuing to do that. When voters go to the polls on November 2nd, or starting October 22nd, because we all vote early now, and uh, to choose a president, we're also going to vote on renewal of uh, after eight years of the Pre-K for SA initiative. And adding um, uh, pre-K education for our four-year-olds before they enter kindergarten, we uh, we were an early national leader when Mayor Julian Castro uh, was mayor and Cheryl Scully was city manager, and we initiated that. Um, that initiative, by the way, was chaired by Charles Budd at HEB and by General Joe Robles, the CEO of USAA. We had two very powerful business leaders whose credibility was unshakable lead that. And it was still a tough election. Yeah. I remember that it was, it was not a foregone conclusion by any means. And there are still people today um, who don't look very closely at the program and what it's accomplished who question that one eight cent sales tax. Yeah. I think it's critically important that we renew that tax and continue that program and continue to invest in our four-year-olds, particularly the four-year-olds that are in the inner city um, and get them to where they are going to be by the third grade reading, critically thinking, and the equal of uh, their counterparts, their peers in more prosperous school districts. So I'm just going to kind of go where this goes. You make an, you've brought up Mr. Charles Butt multiple times, who couldn't be a bigger advocate for public education in the state of Texas mm-hmm. than maybe anybody. Um, San Antonio has this strange thing happening with our public school system, with the rise of public charter schools kind of becoming a big, a, a big force in the city. Um, from that standpoint, do you think that is in any way creating sort of these public education islands among our inner city, uh, dif- different areas that are our inner city in which children can't get to a public charter due to transportation issues, but that public charter is taking public money away from their local school? Are you seeing that? Are you hearing about that? Is that just, you know, some of the fear mongering you hear? It's a complex uh, proposition, and I think people that take um, an absolute side one way or the other 
aren't addressing the complexity. Yeah. But the fact is public charters wouldn't exist if the public school districts were performing at a higher level in the day. And uh, many of those uh, public schools were failure factories, uh, including the, the high schools in the San Antonio Independent School District, our biggest inner city school district. And that gave rise to the public charters because parents want something better for their children right now. They don't have time to be part of a reform movement. They want something for their children right now. And that really fueled interest in public charters. Public charters, in turn, forced school districts to finally become more competitive and to, and to change and adapt. There's just no way the uh, calcified school board uh, of the San Antonio Independent School District would have hired a, um, a change agent like Superintendent Pedro Martinez if they weren't threatened by the loss of students, the loss of revenue, uh, they gave in and only over their dead bodies. And several of those uh, school board trustees are gone now, and we have a, a pretty laudable school board in charge. And what Pedro's done over five years, with a lot of help from the business community and others, is really amazing. Um, so the charters exist because there was a demand that was not being met. Um, but yes, they do siphon off students. They do siphon off um uh, revenue from teachers, public, from teachers from yeah. the public school district. There's kind of a saying in uh, among people that follow education that that school districts can't get rid of a bad teacher and the <laughs> charters can't keep them. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. You know, there's so much turnover. But but um, for me, the issue is whether or not the state of Texas is keeping the playing field level and holding charters to the same standards as the districts and. I think that's a very fair issue for exploration. But the bottom line is the charters aren't going away. The school districts aren't going away. All of us need to come together and figure out how do we improve public education outcomes because it's the only long-term solution to addressing the poverty problem. You, you mentioned Graham Weston, and I've discussed this with friends, that one thing that San Antonio lacks is kind of that um, marketplace of jobs that are higher paying. So we've got lots of low paying labor jobs. We have some high paying executive and technology jobs, but we don't have a big uh, industry. And maybe that's going to be cybersecurity or one of these that's going to breed these higher paying middle class jobs. Are you seeing that changing? Are we getting better in terms of the sort of upper middle class, higher paying jobs? Are we about the same? I mean, what do you, what have you seen in the trends in terms of the marketplace for jobs? There's actually been a, a significant shift in San Antonio over the last decade from being a brain drain city to a brain gain city. And, and that's happened in two ways. Number one, more and more of the young, highly educated um, millennials who are from here have come home. That would be my, our two sons, Nicholas okay. and Alexander. They both left to find their fame and fortune somewhere else. It's not that they didn't like uh, life in San Antonio, but the opportunity wasn't here. Sure. But as the city has changed and evolved, more opportunities have been created, and I they they came back. Then there's the, uh, the 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 educated migrant that comes in, the person that's attracted to that rack space job, or now the many spinoffs from rack space. And I actually, um, particularly because I came out of this emerging tech district down on East Houston Street, uh, where the Rivard Report was located in in its uh, early years. <clears throat> I've seen countless startups uh, become profitable going concerns, um, business to business software development companies uh, and, and, and others, and they're paying young people very well, very competitively. And those are very good jobs and they're attracting people from Austin and Denver and 
and, and other cities to here. And we have a, a very enviable cost of living ratio. Yeah. So if you get a good professional salary here, you can um, purchase much more housing than you can. If you happen to be in Boston or on one of the, you know, California cities or Austin or Austin. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so I know prices have gone up here and people are lamenting that and we have our own unique housing issues. But, but if you're a, a professional in this city, you can live very well on a good salary. So you, the trend you've seen is it, it is getting better and the, the, those market, the, the marketplace for those types of jobs has increased. I really think it is. I mean, we're still a small business economy despite the HEBs and USAAs and Boleros and, and uh, Bank of America's and others, um, those are all great companies. But but um, we're a small business economy, and it's a great place to be a small business. And um, at least it was until the shutdown. Yeah. And and uh, I think there's a lot of great job creation that's going on out there. You mentioned cyber. It's a we we've had thousands and thousands of uh, U.S. service men and women cycle through uh, the Air Force uh, yeah. uh, here and then go on. And we're finally starting to capture them and keep them as they come out into the civilian world with their own ideas about solutions to technical problems. And so you've got the National Security Agency that has an enormous footprint here. They ha they, they operate very quietly, but we're one of the biggest intel gathering sites outside of uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. Yeah, And um, we have the 24th and 25th Air Force uh, wings at, uh, at Lackland. And uh, um, we have any any uh, any number now of uh, dozens and dozens of cyber companies that have spun off out of all that, and will continue to spin off. Those are high-paying software engineering jobs. Uh, they attract people. People start families here. Once we get people here with their family, we got them. I think that's right. I mean, I love San Antonio, and I always tell people it's the best kept secret in Texas. Um, and part of the reason I love it, we're gonna. Sh I could probably go on and on and talk to you for hours on everything, but let's go back to the Rivard report. Um, the Rivard report is not mainstream media as you hear people talk about now. What is your What is your goal with the Rivard report? Well. We, we, we're very careful about who we hire. That's we, your cut, by the way. That's your gift for coming well, on. Well, thank you. <laughs> we, and we explain to people coming in, we're a nonprofit with a mission, and our mission is to help use quality, credible, nonpartisan journalism and our, uh, and our uh, growing number of civic engagement events to better inform and connect people in the city and make it a better place for people to live, work, and play. We want to see San Antonio become a better city, meaning a more equitable city, a city where more people share in the prosperity, a better educated city, uh, a more environmentally um, responsible city, uh, a healthier city yeah. that addresses its type 2 diabetes, its, its epidemic of uh, obesity and adolescent obesity. Those are all things we care about, and we don't want to just be on the sideline going, oh, we're throwing stones at the glass plate um, as the media. We want people to be able to use our journalism and act on it. Do the reporters have um, pretty pretty open latitude on what they want to cover in basically in their area of specialty? It's a very collaborative thing. Okay, you know our we have we have a, Emily Donaldson covers education. We have Rosanna Garza who covers health. Brendan Gibbons who covers the environment and energy. Iris Dimmick who covers local government. And I could go on and on. Uh, Nicholas Frank, Arts and Cultures, they're all drinking out of fire hoses. The <laughs> demand for what we do, it just grows exponentially. But our staff remains small, talented, 
passionate, driven, but small. Yeah. And there's only so much they can do. And so, um, was Brennan with the Express News too? He at was some with point? the Express News. Yeah, I mean, I always, I always catch myself reading Brennan's and Iris's. Uh, just consistently, I always read their articles. Graham Watson Ringo, our managing editor, was the head of ExpressNews.com. Okay, she came over to, to our side. So, uh, and and they're talented people, and we're really happy to have them. And there's any number of people at the Express News I'd love to have on yeah. our staff if we could wave a magic wand and find <laughs> the money and convince them that we were worth the, uh, trying out. But uh, it's a very collaborative, um, uh, you know, um, process. And it's also, um, you know, controlled somewhat by the news. And so everybody's been a coronavirus reporter. And uh, since, uh, since the death of uh, Mr. Floyd in Minnesota, everybody has been a Black Lives Matter uh, reporter. We only have two photographers. Um, you know, the Express News, I probably saw three photographers every night out on the streets um, documenting the protests. And uh, and your people are putting themselves in danger being out there. They are. And they're, you know, my staff is a very young staff. A couple of people, it's their first or second job in journalism. Uh, I have reporters and photographers that are in their early 20s. Mm. I'm 67. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. You're I, keeping them all on their toes. Um I used to say that I had people on their staff that were young enough to be my sons and daughters. And one reporter approached me and said, would you mind not saying that? Because you're closer to my grandfather's age than my dad's age. So fired. You're uh, fired. <laughs> I, I, I'm careful about that. But no, there, there, there's people in their, you know, their twenties, their thirties, their forties. Um, they've learned a lot. Some of them never covered anything like this uh, before the, the pandemic. Some of them never covered um, street protests, which can be very intimidating. Yeah, uh, I told you before off off uh, microphone that Scott Ball, our, our veteran photo editor, um, was um, documenting, photographing the uh, incidents of looting on East Houston Street, and he was threatened to stop. And when he didn't, uh, several people surrounded him, hit him, knocked his camera to the ground, and made off with his five thousand dollar camera or our five thousand yeah. dollar camera. We're the Rivard Report is spending $5,000 of sure. our scarce resources this week to replace that, and uh, that hurts. So um, that's intimidating for people yeah, that have never been through it. haven't met Scott, he couldn't be a nicer man. I mean, he Absolutely. came and, he came and photographed us, and he's just such a nice man. But they're out there putting themselves in the middle of it to make sure you get a good story about it. Well, that's one thing we haven't covered, saying he's a nice man. The, the people that work at the Rivard Report are wonderful human beings. Yeah. Uh, they're caring people. They're... They're dedicated. They're passionate. We we've curated our building our team very carefully, and with one or two exceptions of people not working out, we've we we've just built a remarkable team of people that really matter. And um, newsmakers notice that they feel like they're treated fairly. Uh, that reporters don't misrepresent what they say. Um, that uh, the reporting is accurate and credible, uh, and that when we make mistakes, we're quick to admit it and try to correct our errors. Um, the culture, the workplace at the Rivard Report, at least before we started working remotely, yeah. but even our remote work culture is a very good one. It can be better, and we know that, and we're trying to uh, work on areas where we can improve, but uh, it's been one of the most rewarding things I've done in a really long and varied career. It's great, and it makes your product so much better when everybody likes each other and morale is good. Um, you touched on this a second ago. You know, we had Dr. Uh, Roar Allegrini on, I think, episode number two, talking about it, the epidemiologist. She's written a handful of articles that have been published in the Rivard Report. Y'all welcome uh, guest columns, I guess you would call them. 
how do y'all judge what is worthy of publishing? Um, because I'm sure you get stuff you don't publish. Well, we, on occasion we get, we get something that we reject or, you know, if we get something that's blatantly self-serving, um, it goes over to the business side. Somebody can buy a corporate sponsored post. Um, those are, you know, when they're done well are very effective, but, but people in the community from, from, uh, you know, the mayors and, and uh, university presidents are invited to write all the way down to, uh, you know, artists, neighborhood activists, um, teachers, nurses, anonymous people that have never had a platform like that. And it's an extraordinarily rewarding thing for people to be able to tell their story and to have the community. People are always surprised how many people in the community say, hey, I saw your your stuff on the Rivard yeah. Report. And you probably know that as having done uh, one of contributed one of one of the uh, articles to yeah. the where I live series it's it's a really popular feature it's great it's fun but we solicit some of those like this week we're out talking to many African-American leaders in the community um, asking them to either participate with our reporters or to consider writing a commentary uh, I believe today we posted a commentary from uh, one of the senior um, officials at the San Antonio Independent School District an African-American a commentary on the current situation. Yeah. And, uh, and then many people will just come forward and say, um, I disagree intensely with something that you <laughs> wrote, Bob, or something else, or I've got a take on something. And uh, we work with them. We're kinder, gentler editors. Um, and uh, we get their material into publication and we give it the same social media and newsletter promotion yeah. of our own work. And, and uh, it, it's, it, it, it helps. Um, it's who we are. So I saw that firsthand because I don't know if you remember, but Manny Pelaez wrote an op-ed about a lawsuit verdict here that he got hired post-verdict to help with the appeal. And I'm a lawyer uh, by trade, and that's what I do day to day. And I found it very offensive that he was almost, in my opinion, indicting our jury system here in San Antonio. And it created an uproar in our little industry of people who actually go to the courthouse and try cases, people who are friends with the judges, and people who think, our juries here are great. I mean, sometimes we lose, but they usually get it right. And we were trying to figure out how we wanted to approach it. And then we all sort of said, well, let's sit tight because we bet we, we figured there would be some sort of response. Now, Ricardo Cedillo, the lawyer on the other side, he wrote his response. And I thought that was really important that y'all made sure that both opinions got out there because one of them was, um, I did not think a fair representation of what was going on, but you know, it got corrected and Mr. Cedillo got to write his pointing out what he thought were sort of fallacies in those arguments. So I saw it firsthand and I think that's very important that both sides get to have a voice. Um, but at that time I was pretty surprised at what I was reading and I was thinking, who wrote this? And then I saw somebody well, with an interest. It, that's the way it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work perfectly, but uh, the intentions are, are, uh, are to make it always work perfectly. One of the things in your mission statement was above and beyond news is community engagement. Why is it important to you as a news person um, to have that as a sort of focus or portion of your news outlet to also have the com community engagement angle? We've got to go to where people live. Um, we've just seen uh, with the shutdown of the public school system that literally there's uh, a couple hundred thousand households in our community that don't have high-speed internet connectivity. And those students became lost at first to the public school districts. Some still are. Yeah. Uh, there was no way for them to compete in the, on the, on the, on the uh, field of distant learning with uh, those, those families that had households with high-speed internet 
tablets, smartphones, desktop computers, and lunches, and parents that yeah. uh, that w- were educated themselves and were able to participate in the process, which sure. is a key key in distant learning. One of the things inner city school officials have told me, Pedro Martinez and others, is you're not just connecting with the child; you're connecting with the whole family. You've got to embrace the whole family to make distant learning possibly work. Some of these kids are in very small houses with a lot of distraction going on. They don't have quiet workplaces. They don't maybe have a parent that can help them with that, you know, algebra or geometry uh, or reading. And um, it's, a, it's a real challenge. So when we take events out into the community, we're often reaching people that might want to read us, but ne- aren't necessarily reading us with frequency. Mm. They might be reading us when they go to the library or bibliotheque and have access to a, a computer but they're, they're not uh, connected the way you are or, or I am. Sure. And so uh, we found that going out into the neighborhoods and listening, we're broadening our, our base of uh, sources of people that we report about and contact for reporting, um, that we're um, introducing the Rivard Report to people that have never heard of it, even though we've been around now for eight and a half years. <laughs> not a week of my life goes by, Justin, where somebody doesn't say to me, what have you been doing since you retired? <laughs> Uh, which is a real wake-up call to yeah. me about marketing and, and uh, promotion. But, um, well, it's funny. When you said it was a blog earlier, I just had a flashback to when y'all first started. It looked like a blog, and it felt like a blog. I mean, now it's I mean, it's all the bells and whistles now, but it really was just kind of a news blog at first. Well, then I surrounded myself by smart people, oh. and you know, things got better very quickly. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Like we discussed, I had terrible audio in here until somebody came by and told me, yeah, it sounds terrible. you got to fix that. People, um, people love civic engagement. We just did a series over three weeks in May of education forums. We had like 550 people tuning into the first one. I mean, that was uh, on Zoom or something. Yeah, it was on Zoom. I was on Crowdcast, another platform. But my wife went to one of yours in person uh, maybe a year ago, and she said it was like full to the gills. Yeah, we we do one every year at the Mays Family Center, and we sell it out. That's where it was. I think. you know, 650, 750 paid people for lunch. And, uh, it's a festival. Yeah. Um, do y'all make any money from those things? We do. Okay. It's not our primary source. You know, our revenue model though is diversified, which is one of the reasons we're a healthy nonprofit. We, we sell advertising and marketing. We make sure that advertising and marketing is held to the same high standards that, that our, our editorial content is. So there's a lot of advertising on other digital media sites in town that you don't you don't see on our site, yeah. Um, but we we make advertising and marketing revenue. We have the individual and business membership uh, support that I've told you about. Those are the recurring annual donations. They range from twenty five dollars for the young person who doesn't really have a lot of money, but is giving us a debit card, you know, five bucks a month or less, yeah. uh, all the way up to people that have given us, you know, six figure commitments. Particularly the uh, the you know the third leg of that is foundations and philanthropists and uh, major donors, and then we make money uh, from our events. We don't make a lot of money, but for example, the education forum that, that uh, your wife attended, that probably um, yielded enough money <clears throat> after uh, everything was paid for that we gave out $50,000 in grants to participating education nonprofits wow. that helped us plan that event. That's great. And we're going to do that again this year, even though it's virtual. And uh, that's impressive. I mean, the media, no one else in the media is giving away money to other oh, nonprofits. Right. And, but that, that builds a sense of, uh, of uh, that we're from here, that we're in this community, and that uh, we're 
we're people's neighbors and, um, and that we're here not for profit, but uh, because we're invested in the community. Eric Cooper from the food bank was on two weeks ago and your organization has it. The food bank has it. There's something about certain nonprofits that the leadership's passion for their goals sells everything for itself. Like I can't imagine Eric Cooper walking into a room and saying, give me money. I need your money. But I can hear him just say, I love people. I'm going to feed people. We're here to help. And you just want to give them money. I mean, y'all have tapped into something like he has that the passion makes people want to support it because they know it's great for the community. What's next for the Rivard report in terms of growth? Are y'all where y'all want to be? Are y'all hoping to add some sort of arms or, or angles to what y'all do or what's sort of the plan? Well, first of all, by the way, Eric Cooper, if there was a hall of fame for nonprofit leaders in San Antonio, he'd be, he'd be the first person in. Uh, he, he's got that thing. Mr. Rogers has, he makes you feel warm and you want, you want to be around him. Like I'd never met him before, but there is something He's remarkable. There's something biblical being. about that guy. I mean, really, he really is just a genuinely wonderful heart. He has uh, he has built up the San Antonio Food Bank, which, you know, is called the San Antonio Food Bank, but it serves dozens of counties into one of the largest enterprises of its kind in the country. Yeah. So we can take great pride in that. Um, you know, what's coming for the Rivard Report is um, we're going to emerge from this pandemic and the ensuing economic shutdown stronger than ever. Not a lot of nonprofits are going to be able to say the same thing. A lot of them are in crisis and, yeah. and I understand that and I'm sensitive to that, but our audience grew by hundreds of thousands of page views wow. uh, month over month um, just from people that heard about us for the first time or realized how important uh, a source of news and, and information we could be in this moment. And um, there all signs are that audience isn't dissipating as the curve flattens. And so um, as we broaden our, our reach, both uh, in terms of who's reading us and our own geographic reach, um, I hope that we broaden our membership and our donor base. Uh, if our budget grows, we'll grow prudently. Uh, we've never missed a payroll, and I've never lost a night's sleep over payroll. So um, I've had a great board of directors, and um, by being conservative in our spending and ambitious in our journalism, it's been a that's been a good business model, and that's what we'll adhere to. But we are one of the fastest-growing cities and regions in the country, and um, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I want to add people over the years. <laughs> we, we, we need more of everything. Is there spe any specific area of coverage that you think, ah, we're pretty close, we need a reporter just for that? Or if we had money, this is the first reporter. I mean, would it be a poverty reporter or somebody about the inner cities? I mean, anything specific? All of the above. Yeah. Um, more people covering government, people covering race relations, more people covering uh, community and neighborhoods. Um, one education reporter should be three education yeah. reporters. Two photographers should be four or at least one with, with a video camera. Um, we could use a stronger weekend operation. Um, I need more fluency in Spanish on our staff. Uh, I told you that, uh, you know, have an African-American editor and managing editor that we're proud of that came from the Express News, Graham Watson Ringo, but we don't have an African-American reporter. Um, that's, that's something that needs to be fixed. Right. And uh, that's, that's just not right in the day and age we live in. Um, so we're not perfect. We have a lot of areas that we can improve on. We need another columnist. Um, I have my own transition plan that's taking shape for the next generation of leadership at the Rivard Report on both the business side, I'm the publisher, and I'll eventually turn those publishing reins over to a new publisher. 
and I'm the editor and I'll turn the, uh, the office of the editor over. And I want to write my column for some time to come, but the day is going to come where I want to go write another book yeah. and, and, uh, I want to do some other things, travel more, fish more. <laughs> and, um, so we need, a, we need, um, we need another strong voice to come along. Uh, Rick Casey is iconic, but Rick is my age. And, um, uh, it would be great to have a person of color with that kind of voice and standing in the community, yeah. particularly uh, in San Antonio, we're such a Latino community. So um, there's a lot of areas where we need to add talent and throw weight. And um, if the if the community continues to support us and that support grows, we'll um, we'll deliver. Robert, I try to keep these right around an hour. We're getting there, but before we before we get off the air. Tell people how they can support. Tell, their, tell them where they can learn more about the Rivard Report. Well, we're a 5013C, so 100% of whatever you give is tax deductible. And not only that, we're, we're in the middle of a $100,000 challenge grant from the Newman Family Foundation, and they are doubling the gifts that a lot of people are giving us, uh, particularly those that join in our leadership circle uh, at $1,000 and above. But as I said, membership starts at $25. You just go to our homepage. There's a donate button, and you can click on that and donate securely. Um, you can become a recurring member and give a little bit every month if you want instead of a single payment. And if you um, still have a checkbook in your possession and you want to write a check and put it inside an envelope with a stamp on it, um, you can you can mail it to us. It's all there on that donate button. And um, businesses in particular uh, are welcome uh, because we appreciate their expression of, you know, their vote of confidence and letting us put their name on our wall is they support the work we're doing in the community. So individuals, we encourage uh, not only the individuals to join, but for individuals to advocate with their employers to join. Uh, my law firm's a sponsor. We can we, we expect to continue to do so. If anybody has questions about how we do it or what we do or why we care about it, please reach out to me. Um, that's going to do it with this episode. Robert, thank you so much for being here. I hope I can get you on again when your transition plan's happening or after it's happened or any other time when you have anything you want to share. I hope we can be a platform to help sort of serve the same mission you are serving. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, it's been a pleasure being here. And uh, I invite you to meet some of the talented people that, that uh, I work with. And Love to. Have them on. They're, I would love to. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. Guest wish list continues. Um, Coach Pop, Shea Serrano, Patty Mills. We're going to try to get some of y'all on. You're doing great things for the city. Personally, I just love Coach Pop and want to talk to him. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. It should be up on, uh, on the following uh, episode number 18. So that's it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio.